Hello, and thank you for joining us today for Frost & Sullivan's latest webinar. Today's event is titled Top 2018 Emerging Market Countries for Investment Opportunities. My name is Anna, and I oversee Frost & Sullivan's Growth, Innovation, and Leadership Briefings. Before we begin, I'd like to go over a few notes. We will have some detailed slides on this presentation, so there's a full screen feature available at the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. You can safely share this briefing at any time via social media, email, or blogs. Today's discussion will also be available on demand shortly after we've finished. And don't forget to submit your questions throughout the session today. Our presenters today are Neha Anna Thomas, Team Leader with Emerging Market Innovation, and also Rutru Majumadar, Senior Industry Analyst as well with Emerging Market Innovation here at Frost & Sullivan. Their biographies can be viewed on your screen at this time. With that, I would now like to hand the presentation over to Neha. Thank you, Anna. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Thank you for joining us today for this presentation on the top 2018 emerging market countries. Uh, so the section that I will be focusing on will delve into exploring emerging market trends. We'll be looking at the full factors that sort of drive companies to really prioritize these markets. But before we get into emerging market trends, if you can take a look at the slides that you view on your screen, this is a synopsis of our detailed data-driven research that we've undertaken to sort of identify the top 2018 list of emerging markets. We've used a very comprehensive data-driven indexing approach to assess global emerging market generation. And the outcome is we have developed a ranking of emerging market countries to highlight where they stand in regards to their macroeconomic positioning. So during the course of today's presentation, we will provide you with more insight into our methodology to the same, the approach, and the key results, with the aim that our data-driven analysis and findings should help organizations globally in their emerging market selection, site selection, and expansion decisions. So with that, we'll be moving on to the next slide that begins with exploring emerging market key trends, and we're going to be starting with demographics. So this particular slide particularly focuses on demographic advantages from two angles, namely the working age population advantages that emerging markets enjoy, and we're also going to be looking at dependency ratios in developed markets vis-a-vis -vis emerging markets. So if you could turn your attention to the charts on the left portion of this slide, indicating a working age population growth rate. The first particular chart is for developed economies, and the second one is for emerging economies. So as you can see, there's a lot of red in the chart for developed economies. So the growth rate of working age population in developed economies has turned negative and has continued to remain negative over the long-range forecast period. For example, between 2020 and 2030, the growth rate is expected to hover in the range of about minus 0.30. This indicates that the working age population size in developed countries has started to shrink and is expected to continue to shrink. Now, why is this so? In the post-2000 period, 
developed countries started to demonstrate rapidly falling birth rates because of which lesser persons are being added to the working age pool, with more persons instead being added to the elderly population pool. So the disadvantage for developed economies is that when the working age population size contracts, obviously, there's a smaller labor force pool for organizations to choose from. Now, if you look at emerging markets, on the other hand, you see a contrast in trend. The working age population is growing at a very healthy rate. In fact, if you look at birth rate data for 2017, in emerging markets, it was 36 per 1,000 persons. These are the only 11 to 1,000 persons in developed economies. So, in effect, basically, the working age population across emerging markets is expected to continue expanding at a healthy pace, indicative of the advantage of a growing labor force pool for organizations to tap into. And we don't envision a fall for another 100 years from now. In effect, as highlighted at the top of the slide in terms of figures, the working age population of emerging markets is expected to increase by 1.9 million persons by 2030, in comparison to 2015 levels. So this is definitely a distinct advantage. Now let's look at this dependency ratio trends, moving your attention to the right hand of this slide. The dependency ratio is nothing but the size of the elderly population to that of the working age population. A higher ratio is indicative of a greater demographic burden because it implies that the working age population has to support a larger dependent population. Now, if you look at the, the chart and the figures, you'll see that this ratio is expected to increase across both developed and emerging economies. However, the burden for developed economies, as you can see from the figures, was and is expected to remain much higher than that of emerging economies. Consequently, what is expected to happen is that more resources across developed countries are likely to go towards supporting the elderly population. For example, what may have been used or could have been used towards infrastructure development might need to be redirected towards public health care. Moving on to the next slide, where we view emerging markets as a home to the rising middle class population as evidenced by data trends. So for our convenience, you can see the middle income class share that emerging markets hold and are expected to hold. That's been outlined in orange. So as you can see, the share of the middle income earning population in emerging market countries grew from 20.4% in 2000 to 31.5% in 2010. And this share is only expected to grow to reach about 50% by the end of 2030. On the contrary, in developed economies, what's happening is that the middle income share is declining. And with the rise in income inequalities, we expect to see a share of both the low income and high income population in developed economies to increase. Coming back to emerging markets, what is the advantage of this growing middle income class? It's that it should drive much higher consumer demand, and these markets are increasingly being viewed as hubs for companies to strategize in terms of they represent a growing market for goods and services. China, India, Brazil, Russia, and Mexico, these are the top five countries contributing to the growth of the global middle class population 
and our findings reveal that their middle class share is expected to cross 60% by 2030. Now having delved into some of the key emerging market trends, we're now going to be getting into our process and methodology for assessing global emerging markets and their positioning. And with that, I'd like to hand it over to Ritu, who will take you through the process of how we've ranked and prioritized emerging market countries that organizations should be looking at. Sure. Thank you, Neha, for your interesting insights. I will now discuss about the indexing process, its structure, methodology, and after that, we will look into the results very carefully. Um, with such a backdrop that Neha discussed just now, uh, we at Frost & Sullivan comes up with unique definition of emerging markets to watch out for every year. Um, the first edition occurred in 2017, and in 2018's list is an updation of the same. Um, 2018 list comprises of a list of 60 emerging markets. Well, um, not all of the 60 markets are promising at the moment, but they are you know, kind of categorized in such a way that one can systematically identify the country's specific strengths, know their pain points, and thereby make suitable choices. So every year, Frost & Sullivan examines and finds out which of the emerging markets are essentially competitive from a site selection angle. The definition of emerging markets is an uh, annual publication, and this slide discusses the objective behind uh, this exercise. Well, the beauty of the process is that this exercise is based on Frost & Sullivan's proprietary indexing methodology and takes into account a whole gamut of factors in order to prepare a list. So the framework essentially centers around you know, six crucial areas, or rather you know, pillars as we call them. And if you can look at this slide, these pillars are economy, demography, innovation ecosystem, human resources, business environment, and investment environment. The reason why we focused on these set of factors is that, uh, you know, as economy and demography are the very um, core of the elements, innovation and human resource competences form the superstructure. And business and investment environment are some of the elements which are policy-driven and essentially capture the leadership abilities of the governments. Hence, this exercise really gives kind of a comprehensive 360-degree approach to site selection strategies. Moving to the next slide where we discuss the methodology in detail um, as to how we arrived at the results. So Frost & Sullivan has developed its own definition of emerging markets and runs every year a robust and data-driven index model for emerging countries from a site selection standpoint. Um, Frost & Sullivan's definition of emerging markets comprise of countries with a GDP per capita less than $35,000 with a population more than 5 million as well as a nominal GDP more than $20 billion. So essentially the smaller economies are invariably kept out of the analysis and also we did not consider economies of very high levels of development since we essentially wanted to focus only on emerging countries. 
And interestingly, the central element of this exercise is that this list is not um, any you know, binary list based only on size-related indicators, let's say GDP or population, but rather it takes into account a wide range of factors you know, centered around uh, those six pillars. And totally, I think 30 indicators are included here to assess the country's competitiveness. Now, under each pillar, we added indicators pertaining to that pillar. So economy captures you know, the GDP, GDP growth, trade, and investment in flows, and so on. Demography focuses on demographic profiles of countries, you know, essentially population, as well as population by age groups, etc. Innovation ecosystem. Um, this particular pillar gauges the country's strength of innovation, and it has indicators such as internet, smartphone penetration, patent files by countries, R and expenditure, and so on. Then human resources-related indicators, you know, corroborates each country's initiatives towards a well-skilled human resource pool, with indicators such as education expenditures, literacy rate, labor force pool, then STEM graduates, etc. Then business environment pillar. This one tracks each government's you know, abilities, particularly leadership abilities, by analyzing country's corruption index and political stability. Then corporate tax is also one very important indicator here. Um, under investment environment pillar, this has indicators such as e-governance, ease of doing business rank, logistics performance rank, um, protection of investors, uh, specifically to the SMEs, and so on. And as far as the methodology is concerned, <clears throat> we collect the data from the ch for the chosen indicators, and we predominantly use sources such as IMF, the World Bank, United Nations, UNESCO, um, World Health Organization, ITU, and also use a wide range of Frost and Salvan's own data repository. Now, once the data is gathered, we then try to assign weights to the indicators as well as to the pillars. Since you know not all the pillars would have equal importance in the index creation process. Now, in this slide, um, if you can look at the item number four, you would see that investment indicators were given the highest weightage in order to focus on the case of site selection, followed by business environment. And economy and demography were given slightly lower weightage just to kind of uh, neutralize the effect of really large size countries. And innovation and human resources was given the least weightage here because we feel that perhaps only you know, for advanced manufacturing and innovation-late companies, these indicators might be important. Now, based on the data and weightages of the indicators, we kind of arrive at the weighted average scores for each country. And based on that scores, we rank the countries. And then based on the ranks, we categorize the countries in three groups, namely front runners, transforming economies, and fledgling economies. I will now hand it over to Anna to take us through the poll question. Thank you to the audience members. I just pushed out our poll question, so if you can take a moment to uh, select an answer, and uh, we'll discuss the results immediately. So the poll question reads, which of these factors do you consider most important when undertaking emerging market site selection? 
or business expansion decisions? Is it uh, economic strength, workforce size and skill, innovation competitiveness, or business and investment climate? And we'll give everyone here about uh, 15, 15 to 20 seconds, and then we'll reveal the results. Okay, uh, thank you to those who have voted already. Just a few more seconds here. Okay. So these are the results that we have so far. So it looks like we have 83% indicate business and investment climate, and 16%, actually it's changing right now, so um, actually let's see here. 85%, actually it changed, okay, so updated results now. 77% indicate business and investment climate, and 22% indicate workforce size and skill. Ruto, any comments on these results? Um, sure, Anna, absolutely. Um, I think, yes, I think most certainly, I think uh, it exactly is the most important element, business and investment client, and should be, I think, as per our opinion too, should be the most important element of site selection strategies, and it clearly matches with Frost and Sullivan's viewpoint too. And, um, uh, you know, I think uh, economic growth and business environment factors such as, let's say, political stability and corruption are deeply interconnected. Like political uncertainty, it, it may reduce investment in flows and can actually jeopardize the pace of development. For example, a country or a region could be huge in terms of market potential, you know, but then some of the geopolitical developments could make the country politically very fragile and hence is not perhaps the best country to even invest into. So a secured business environment is perhaps the starting point of a site selection approach. Also, improving the investment climate through promoting private sector-led growth in this era of industrialization is definitely one of the core elements of government agenda now. Indeed, jobs and prosperity are, the, are best created by deregulation of private sector at the moment. And, you know, central government bodies and ministries, is, their main task these days is actually to focus on making the private sector flourish. Uh, hence, factors such as, you know, efficient regulatory environments, then streamlined licensing procedures, simple tax administration, easy credit, particularly to the, to the SMEs and so on, some of the very crucial factors that make a country investment friendly or investor friendly rather. So this definitely uh, probably 
is the most important pillar out of all six. Thanks, Anna, for running this poll. Um, we got some interesting feedback here. And let me get back to these slides now. Well, um, moving to the next slide of discussion. So uh, here comes the results slide. I think we looked at this slide at the very beginning, and uh, let's now discuss the results in a greater detail. This slide is very interesting. It shows the country categorization. Uh, if you can look at here, the green highlighted countries are the front runner countries. The blue ones are transforming, and the red highlighted countries are fledgling countries. Well, as the name suggests, front runners are the cream of the list, you know, with high scores sort of in all the pillars. And examples are kind of obvious. China, Malaysia, India, Brazil, Russia, Poland, and um, probably most of the largest e emerging nations are frontrunners. Now, these countries predominantly score high since they have large consumer markets and easy availability of labor. Now, amongst these small-sized economies like, let's say, Peru, Costa Rica, and Chile, they, they also rank up high as per Frost and Salomon's definition of emerging markets. Um, these countries are you know, classic examples of front-runner countries due to their very impressive business environment and investment capabilities. And uh, essentially, front-runner economies have, you know, they have almost crossed that phase of, we call it accumulation-led growth, and they're kind of in a process of establishing a comprehensive growth thus having very uh, similar characteristics of advanced economies in terms of having very matured capital market, very high smartphone penetration, impressive e-commerce sales, etc. Countries like Chile, then Malaysia, Hungary, Poland, and even you know, Tanzania, Kenya, and Africa, they have more than 50% of population having access to smartphone these days. Then Peru, being such a small country, but its ease of doing business is perhaps better than many of the uh, large economies. And, and Peru also demonstrates very high creditworthiness. The next group is the transforming economies of 2018. Notable countries are, if you can look at the slide here, uh, Colombia, Vietnam, Philippines, Ecuador, even Morocco, Ghana, and Kenya in Africa are also notable uh, transforming countries. And um, even most of these countries have a, a very moderate economy and demography scores, and they also have pretty impressive investment potential too. Now, probably in regards to the systematic and sustained innovation pipeline, these countries' scores are a little lower compared to that of the front runners. The third batch of countries is the fledgling economies. Uh, examples would be Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and then many of the you know, African countries like Cameroon, Angola fall under this bracket. Um, visibly, the, the, these are the frontier markets, and their scores are still to catch up the other countries uh, in the emerging market list due to their lower competitiveness in 2018. Moving to the next slide. Um, in this slide, we compare the results of 2018 list against that of 2017, and we see that China maintaining its top ranking with its uh, performance remains largely unchanged from last year. 
um, important countries in South Asia and ASEAN region like uh, India and Indonesia, for example, have shown the maximum improvement in ranking in 2018 compared to what they were last year. And for both of these countries, improvement in rank essentially um, was based on policies indicating effective governance. Some of the other countries that improved their ranking in 2018 were Turkey and Russia due to an improvement in their economic fundamentals uh, in these countries. Moving to the next slide. Well, um, um, so in the previous couple of slides, we looked into the overall ranks of the 60 emerging countries in 2018 based on uh, Frasen Salvan's definition. But I think it is also essentially important to track from a site selection standpoint what the pillar-specific scores for these countries are so that you know, we can understand which of the specific factors are really pulling the country's rank up and which are the factors dragging their rank down. So in the next set of slides, we will particularly focus into looking at each pillar and understand where these countries stand in terms of different areas of development. And for a quick and easy comparison, we created separate world maps color coding uh, those 60 selected countries by their scores in different pillars. And so we have you know, six similar slides where green indicates that the factor is favorable, driving the country's rank up. Blue indicates moderately favorable factor and red means unfavorable factor bringing down the country's rank. Now quickly looking at this slide, this is based on the pillar economy. And in this pillar, I think India, China, Russia, we can see a lot of green highlighted countries. And most of the emerging Europe, even a lot of these uh, Latin American countries are doing well in terms of factors such as GDP or trade, investment inflows, and so on. So probably barring some of the African nations, an overall improvement in economic development and an improvement in quality of life is happening in most of the emerging countries. Moving to the next slide, where we have it by the pillar demography, we can see that the giants like you know China and India are most favorable and they are colored in green due to their very high population and hence very high domestic demand in absolute terms. Moving to the other pillars, uh, the next would be um, innovation ecosystem. Clearly, if you can look at this slide, most of the emerging countries are still low with regards to its innovation competences, especially Africa, then Central and South Asia also. And I think uh, only China and Malaysia are green colored at the moment showing some strength. I think Malaysia needs special mention here because its innovation score is very high. And I think we are all aware of how Malaysia aspires of becoming a high-income country by 2020 with a strong focus on innovation strategies. The National Science and Innovation Policy also aims Malaysia to achieve R&D expenditure of at least 2% by 2020. Moving to the next uh, slide, which discusses human resources. We see a lot of green-colored countries here. Countries in South Asia and Asia-Pacific, Latin America, 
have sort of uh, gained comparative advantages in creating a pool of skilled resources as we can see here countries like india and china they are very large in size and they have pretty high workage workage population and that is a continuous source of um, cheap labor then indonesia for example has made tremendous progress in terms of the country's capacity to attract and retain foreign talent over time also brazil within latin america it also demonstrates a very high uh, supply of like uh, graduates moving over to the next slide which one discusses business environment here we see that you know most of the emerging countries out of all 60 i think barring few in the north african region have have shown promise um business environment you know as we define it captures essentially the country's political stability and corruption levels and interestingly the brick giants you know the traditional block of brazil russia india and china are kind of not there at all you know uh, if you can clearly look at this slide uh, there are many other nations whose business environment score is much higher than that of the brick countries well uh, brick countries as we know have large markets due to their size but however still battling to sustain a politically safe environment but on the contrary regions like eastern europe has found to have the best business environment among the pool of the 60 countries that we uh, analyzed you know eastern european countries like hungary poland and romania they are ranked very high on business environment due to their long standing political stability their strategic location of being very close to the eurozone uh, a very competitive tax structure and so on also in light of the brexit negotiations eastern europe shows uh, mixed reactions with some businesses think brexit might lead to a drop in exports and increase in unemployment but however we feel that brexit is likely to bring back companies which have bases in uk now to its own territory within eastern europe leading to an increase in domestic production and job creation moving over to the next slide which is investment environment and we see that even as per this pillar the giants like china and india are still to catch countries like malaysia poland or mexico in regards to the ease of doing business rank and an overall investor protection measures countries in eastern europe as well as uh, central asia are not only politically stable you know they have proactively reduced administrative barriers they have simplified their business procedures and have a really sound tax system Uh, moving to the next slide so um, based on all these pillar based analysis let's sort of understand which regions seem to be most promising in 2018 well we find out that regions such as africa though they have very promising uh, business environment are still not high on investors radar for 2018 with not having many front runners countries um, but amongst the other regions we see that emerging americas and eastern europe show maximum promise regions such as asean and the stan and jan economies in the central asia are also to follow asean for example are demonstrating solid growth backed by 
the government's infrastructure drive and is also to remain a major destination for foreign investors in 2018 and beyond. Well, another very important element is worth mentioning here is that with regards to the innovation ecosystem pillar, and if you can look at uh, innovation ecosystem column here, you know, you can see that no region has really got a high scoring. I think the reason why this is so is because many of the emerging markets are still struggling to emerge out of the middle income trap. Uh, still, there are many emerging countries where significant number of population working for agriculture. There are existences of pretty vast urban informal sector. You know, there are governments still focus on providing these basic social needs, and hence innovation lacks. But however, this does not mean that innovation is not happening in emerging markets. There are great evidences, you know, we know that particularly within some of the front runners uh, where governments are really investing into promotion of innovation. Uh, a striking example could be Estonia. It's a very small country, but it's, I think, e-Estonia initiative is sort of path-breaking. You know, its mobile penetration is already more than 130%. Almost everybody in Estonia works on a completely paperless government proceedings. Then you have uh, mobile app innovations for poorest of the social groups, for example, M-Pesa in Kenya or, let's say, SMS payments in Philippines. These are some of the you know, successful government stories within emerging markets. Then you have companies like MCOPA with its pay-as-you-use solar solutions to the poorest in Africa are kind of revolutionizing the energy services. Again, Zipline with its drones are providing vaccines and medical essentials to the inaccessible areas in Africa. You know, so there are a lot of initiatives happening in different corners of the emerging markets. And um, indeed, innovation does occur in emerging markets effectively with, uh, uh, with a sound strategy backup. And to sum it up, emerging markets are and will continue to attract significant foreign investors in 2018 and beyond with robust technological as well as business model innovation. And Frost and Sullivan's definition of emerging markets act as a guide as to how locations can be ranked using a given set of parameters and weightings. And with this, I hand it over to Neha to take us through some of the interesting country case studies. Thank you, Ritu. Thank you for the detailed insight. Audience, I hope you have a better understanding of how we've gone about our indexing process to sort of rank emerging countries. This is done on an annual basis. And the next couple of slides Ritu has highlighted some of the front-runner countries and case examples of the countries that are doing really well. And what we'd like to do is delve a little deeper into the dynamics within these countries and explore what's happening. So if you look at the slide on this chart, you would know that as per our indexing process, the 2018 Emerging Market Index reveals that China and India respectively scored the first and second ranks globally, so they are our global front runners. Uh, what we have done is we wanted to see where, where do the growth stories of these two countries diverge and converge. In terms of why did we do this exercise, we wanted to see what were the similarities that these countries have to offer to investors 
And where is their performance deferring and what would investors find different in these two markets? So we've looked at a couple of key points with the divergence-related indicators uh, put into the first bracket. So let's start with GDP growth of these two countries. Of course, the fundamental metric reflective of the health and growth of an economy. So as you can see, China's 2018 growth is expected to be 6.6%, whereas India's is expected to be much higher at 7.4%. So what's happening with the GDP growth between these two emerging market giants? Now, as most of us would know, China's growth has been on a path of slowdown in recent years amidst the government's structural reforms. And as these reforms continue to take place in 2018, growth is expected to slow down. Now, while this, this does put the country on a more sustainable growth path, but in actual figures, the GDP growth is expected to fall down in, sorry, slow down in the midst of reforms. India's outlook, on the other hand, is quite bright. It's one of upturn. The past two years saw a GDP growth slowdown because of initiatives such as the government's demonetization initiative and a landmark new tax regime uh, that you would have heard of. That's the goods and services tax regime. And uh, these two factors hit the country's growth because of the associated disruptions in the previous two years. But in the coming fiscal, that's fiscal 2018-19, India is expected to see a recovery from these dis disruptions. And moreover, there's a lot of structural reform happening, and private consumption is very strong. Investment demand is also very strong. So as a result of these factors, the country's growth is expected to rise to 7.4% in the fiscal year 2018-19. In fact, India is expected to be the world's fastest growing major economy in 2018. So we see two different growth trends happening between these two countries. Now let's look at working age population trends. Obviously both the countries have very large populations to boast of. But as you can see, China has a red figure highlighted on the slide in regards to the working age population growth. In fact, since 2014, China's working age population size has in fact been shrinking and is expected to get smaller. India, on the other hand, this is a huge demographic advantage for the country. Working age population is and is expected to continue growing at a healthy pace. The challenge, of course, for the government is to ensure that job creation keeps pace with growing working age populations. Let's look at the country's ease of doing business rankings. Now, the World, World Bank's Ease of Doing Business Index ranks 190 countries. So you can see that while the ranks of both the countries are different, China has done better than India. A, 78, a rank of 78 is indicative of better performance, but this is quite a low rank on a global scale. Now, mention should be made of India in the sense that its rank improved from 130th to 100th in 2017, which is quite a large jump. And in the light of structural reforms, especially the landmark, landmark GST tax regime that we talked about, we expect to see a significant improvement in India's rank in 2018 as well. Now moving on to the convergence-related indicators, let's start with logistics performance scores that sort of measures 
the ease of uh, customs and timeliness of shipments, which is very important for companies, especially when you engage in global trade. We can see that the scores of the countries are more or less similar. China scored 3.66 and 3.42 for India. Now this is against, let's look at Germany that scored the highest score globally, that's a score of 4.23. So China and India are not too far from the frontier score. Mention should be made about how India's interstate logistics has significantly improved in the past year with the rollout of the GST tax because a lot of interstate check posts have been removed. So today, the travel time of long-haul trucks and other cargo vehicles in India, for example, has been cut by at least a fifth. Now let's move on to examining the corruption perception index scores, with these scores reflective of the perceived levels of public se sector corruption, with a score of 100 being highly corrupt and, sorry, zero being highly corrupt and 100 being very clean. The 2017 scores of India and China were very close, that's around 40, with both the countries registering an improvement in scores since 2012. Just for your note, New Zealand had the highest score globally with a score of 89. Lastly, we wanted to uh, examine where tariff structures stand for both the countries. And if you look at the simple mean tariff rate on manufactured products, which is reflected of the import burden for manufacturers operating in either India and China. On an average, the figures are sort of close, so the import burden is sort of close at about 7.5% for the both, both the countries. Now, while the figures are similar between India and China, it's quite high in comparison to other emerging market countries such as Mexico and Malaysia. Moving on, for our next set of country case studies, we have uh, looked at the front runners when it comes to business environment and investment attractiveness. As Jitaparna has me mentioned earlier on, when we undertook the indexing process, these two pillars we felt were the most important when it comes to site selection and geographic expansion based on our interaction with organizations. And also that's the same thing that the poll results reveal today. Uh, so looking at uh, Hungary and Malaysia, these were two of the countries that sort of featured at the top when it came to both these pillars. So let's look at what these countries are doing differently to put them at the top and what you as an investor could benefit from when operating in these countries. So looking at the case example of Hungary, for instance, a very important reform is that the country's corporate income tax rate was slashed to 9% in 2017. This was, the, this was and is stands as the lowest rate in the European Union. Prior to this, profits of up to about 1.7 million were taxed at 10%, with anything beyond tax at 19%, so that's a huge cut. Now today, this 9% level is not only the lowest in the EU, it's also amongst the lowest globally. Now moving on, Businesses in Hungary also stand to benefit from the low cost and time involved in exporting and importing, with Hungary securing the first rank globally in trading across borders as per the World Bank. 
Now, training across borders measures the time and cost to import and export by assessing factors such as how long it takes to prepare documents at customs regulations and so on. Hungary's membership in the EU Customs Union could be attributed as a key factor for this number one ranking, and some, of, some other EU counterparts have also secured this number one ranking. Moving on to Malaysia, Malaysia's ease of doing business rank is very high on a global level, although there has been a decline in its positioning, uh, sorry, in its ranking in the recent years. Now, it should be mentioned while the rank the country's rank might have come down. Its distance to the frontier score, or like Malaysia's score in comparison to its best performing country, has improved. Moreover, the country has enacted a high number of reforms to make business easier to do over the past 15 years. As you can see from this slide, in comparison to an East and Asia Pacific average of 15 reforms, Malaysia has implemented 23 reforms in the past 15 years. Now, Malaysia also offers businesses the advantage of single window facilities. A national single window has been in operation way back from 2009, allowing traders to undertake transactions and share data and so on using just a single platform. But more importantly, starting just January of this year, Malaysia became one of the five ASEAN member countries for which the ASEAN single window platform became operational, in effect allowing for cross-border customs documentation through a single platform. Moreover, as we know, that's being well talked about, there's also been a change in governance in Malaysia, which we believe should help lower perceived levels of public sector corruption, which is also one of the indicators that we uh, evaluate in our models. So as we come to the close of this presentation, a quick summary of uh, what we have shared today and what you can take away. Um, so in terms of emerging market trends, some of the key advantages, what are the pull factors that are drawing businesses to emerging markets? As explained, they have a very large working age population that's growing rapidly, and by 2030, Emerging markets are expected to see an expansion of 1.9 million persons in the working age population cohort, when, on instance, developed economies are seeing a shrinkage in their working age populations. And secondly, in terms of trends, the emerging markets are increasingly becoming home to a rapidly growing middle class. And this, in turn, leads to growing demand for consumer goods and services. So businesses are increasingly looking to tap into this demand that's coming out from emerging markets. Uh, we have gone in detail through Frost and Sullivan's 2018 Emerging Market Index and Methodology, and I hope you have a fair understanding of what we have come out with as the 2018 frontrunners, transformers, and transforming markets, and the emerging markets. So our global emerging market frontrunners for 2018, number one and number two, obviously, we have India and China that we spoke about. And from the Asia region, we also have other countries like Malaysia and Indonesia. And Indonesia, as Ritu said, they enjoy the advantage of having a huge capacity to attract and retain talent. And some of the most promising regions that we identified were Eastern Europe and the Americas, uh, with some of the 
frontrunners from these countries being Poland, Hungary, Romania, Chile, Mexico, and Brazil. Do keep in mind that this is not an, an exhaustive list of the frontrunners. There are more. Um, and we also ranked transforming markets and uh, fledgling markets, as you would have heard through the course of, your of this presentation. So you will know where these countries stand. So Frost and Sullivan's indexing met methodology and this exercise of emerging markets, it takes place on an annual basis. So this is the 2018 version. So do stay tuned because we will be coming out with the 2019 version of the emerging market list update. So we do hope to have your participation and to hope to have you tune in for the next webinar on the same. And if you have understood the nature of the model, you understand that there are weightages and it's a bit flexible. And based on the needs of your organization, we'd be happy to work with you if required to tune the weights and sort of see what different results come up. Um, so with that, I'd like to hand it over to Anna again. Thank you, Neha. So before we start our question and answer session, I'd like to just go over uh, the, some next steps. Now, if, uh, if you'd like to follow Frost, Frost & Sullivan for upcoming webinars, research, press releases, please uh, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Also, please note that a detailed report on the 2018 Emerging Market List is available. If you're interested in receiving a copy of this report, please uh, write down the contact details that will be displayed shortly. Now, all attendees of this webinar are eligible for a discount. We would also like to extend the opportunity for you to engage in a free growth strategy dialogue with our experts. For more details on this, I'm going to display the contact details now. And our contact details is Vignish Lakshman, Key Account Manager, Emerging Market Innovation, should you be interested in engaging in a growth strategy dialogue or receiving a copy of the 2018 Emerging Market List Report. So at this time, we're going to start our question and answer session. So uh, we have about 10 minutes, so we'll try to answer as many questions possible. If not, the team will get back with you via email. So let's start with our first question. Our first question, as a pharmaceutical manufacturer, which are the top emerging market locations I should be looking at? Okay, I'll, I'll take that, Anna. Um, Thank you for the question. Uh, I think uh, very good, que very good question, I must say, and uh, very targeted as well. Um, so let me start this, this discussion with a few hypothetical assumptions. Um, so a pharmaceutical company, when looking to expand um, their global manufacturing network, a cross-country assessment of GDP and per capita GDP levels is important in order to assess affordability of drugs across locations. And so per capita is a component of the economy pillar, hence economy pillar has importance in this regard. Then, you know, alongside locations characterized by less cumbersome regulatory processes will be prioritized by the pharmaceutical company with uh, the ease of doing business indicator under the investment pillar uh, being indicative of how governments have worked to minimize regulatory burdens. Hence, I think 
um, indicators under business and investment environment also are crucial. And also, I feel this indexing process definitely shows a starting point where you can get sort of an overarching ranking of countries based on factors from a socio-macroeconomic and um, business environment perspective. However, different industries will have different needs and different type of companies will have different choices and priorities. Hence, the biggest strength of this model and why we call this robust is because the existing model allows customization with a minimal handholding. Now, customization in the form of introduction of few industry-specific elements, as well as we can also remove certain uh, elements which are not needed. So, in case of a drug discovery or, or a drug manufacturing company, we could potentially bring in certain pharma-based indicators like, you know, disease burden, health spending, out-of-pocket expenditure, and so on, to make the list uh, extremely specific to serve pharma market. We could also potentially change the weightages of certain factors to make it client-specific. For example, let's say, um, if you want to assess R&D strength across locations, factors under innovation ecosystem pillar, such as, let's say, R&D expenditure or patent can be potentially given higher weightage. Hence, I feel that uh, with a little tweak in the data model, with a, with a little higher weightage to innovation and economy and slightly lower weightage to demography to cater to the exact need of a pharma company, I think top five locations could perhaps be China, Malaysia, Poland, Hungary, and India. And a country like India will probably slide from second position to number five since the country has low scores for innovation. And um, finally, I think to reiterate Frost and Sullivan's definition of emerging markets, this act as a guide as to how locations can be ranked using a given set of parameters and weightage, and uh, it can be dynamically changed with altered set of factors and weightings. And so for any further queries on customization, please reach out to us. We should be able to help you. Um, over to Anna. Thank you. Question? And we have time here for one more question here. Thank you, Ritu. Why is India expected to grow so much faster than China in 2018? Thank you. Thanks for the question, audience. Thank you for the question, Anna. Uh, so I think, I think the, if you look at the figures, it's quite a stark difference, not a stark difference in the sense that these are often touted as your emerging market giants, and there's almost a one percentage um, point difference in India's and China's growth rates. China's uh, 2018 growth, we expect only to be at about 6.6, .6, and India's is at 7.4%. I believe the question might be why there's such a large difference between the two countries, especially in the light of the fact that India's growth has slowed down. So as highlighted earlier during the presentation, uh, China's growth rate has been on a path of slowdown in the light of structural reforms. Um, and in, the next, in this particular year, we're seeing reforms to sort of uh, rein in credit and to control the property market. So in light of these sustained reforms, China's growth is expected to continue to marginally slow down to 6.6%. 6 
point to be noted that while this is a growth slowdown, it, it definitely, in the light of these reforms, the country will be on a more stable growth path. India, on the other hand, was affected by some disruptions in regards to its uh, currency exchange initiative and a new goods and services tax rollout. So the growth rate slowdown in recent years was largely influenced uh, by one-off incidents. And in the coming year, we could see recovery from these events. And in addition, the government is taking a lot of structural reforms. And data also shows that consumption demand and expected investments are expected to be quite strong, which is why we see the deviation in growth with 7.4 expected growth for India and 6.6 for China in 2018. Thank you, Neha. So we're just about out of time. So this concludes today's uh, webinar. Again, feel free to contact us with any questions or additional feedback. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of your day.